friends. We're going to start a new series for the summer. Uh, we often take a break from going through a book in the Bible chronologically during the summertime because we know that you're traveling and maybe your attendance is a bit more punctuated. And so we take another tack. Sometimes we do the Psalms, sometimes we do the Proverbs. And this summer we're going to be looking at kind of this theme, This We Believe. What, what do Christians believe about God? What do they believe about life, about humanity, about the church, about where this world is going? And today we're going to start with, what does the church believe? What do Christians believe about the Bible? Like, what, what is this thing? We, we open this up every single week. We, we look into it. We study it. We want to be formed and shaped by it. What is this? Well, here's what I know is probably true of everyone in this room, is that everybody comes to the Bible with what I would call Bible baggage. Like there's some experience that you've had with the Bible, whether positive or negative. Perhaps you were raised in a Christian home and your mom and your dad opened up the Bible, they read it to you and you were formed by it. You're familiar with many of its stories and, and maybe you're overly familiar with it so you've kind of dismissed it or you don't code it very often because of, an, because of, a, of a lack of, of desire to be in it. Others have been in families where the Bible was used to abuse you. Like, don't you know God said, the Bible says, and, and they weaponized it. Maybe your, your mom or your dad even weaponized it against each other of what it was to be a husband or what it was to be a wife. Or, or maybe you have friends or you knew people that weaponized it and, and they beat the Bible over your head. And so you have a distaste for what the Bible is. Perhaps your understanding of what the Bible is really just comes from memes that you've seen and memes that just make fun of the Bible and what they, what they think the Bible says. Perhaps your understanding of the Bible is, is simply, you've seen people with huge posters outside sporting events that say the most provocative things. And then at the Bible, of that, uh, at the end of that statement is a Bible verse. And you're like, does that verse really say that? I mean, that's wild and crazy. And we've seen how the Bible has been misused to oppress people. And so there's fear of the Bible. And some would say, you know, that, that Bible is just really an old book that hurts people. It's anti-science, anti-women, it's pro-violence, pro-slavery. In fact, all it really is is a bunch of mythologies, fairy tales, made-up stories to keep one group of people in power over another group of people. Is that the Bible? And many Christians who really want to retain some some desire for the Bible, but then try to, try to help people still have faith in Jesus, but don't want to believe the whole thing. They tell their congregations, pastors tell their congregations, don't worry, you don't have to believe the whole thing. Like there's some wild stuff in there, so don't worry, just don't believe the crazy stuff. Just believe the good stuff. There's, there's good teaching to be found in it. And so dismiss the hard stuff, embrace the good stuff, and still love God. Well, is that the orthodox historical view of what Christians believe the Bible to be. Barna did a study amongst millennials and millennials are actually growing in their desire to read the Bible. And one of the primary motivators of millennials who have not been raised in Christian homes having a desire to know what the book says is by seeing people who live out their lives from the book. 
Like seeing their lives lived in such exemplary ways, they want to know what they have read to see their lives change that way. And so we would say that the Bible is actually the word of God. That's a pretty audacious statement that this book contains words from God. In fact, this would be our statement of faith. Many churches have them. We, we belong to a family of churches, and this is what we together would say is the orthodox historical view of the Bible. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires and trusted in all that it promises. That's a big statement. And it'd probably be hard for you to remember that when you leave here today. Of course, it's posted on our, our website. You can find it there. But I want to help even bring it down a little bit lower. And I want to build a frame for you of what the Bible is. And I want you to be able to think about four words when you think about the Bible in a lot of what this tries to articulate. The Bible is these four words. It's revelation. It's relational, it's reliable, and it's relevant. These are four words that I want to have in your mind. And like all good sermons that are alliterated, you'll never forget it. But it's revelation, it's relational, it's reliable, and it's relevant. So we're just going to kind of unpack each one of these words as it connects itself to the statement of faith and what Christians believe the Bible to be. The very first thing is we believe it to be revelation. Revelation simply means revealing. Revelation is to reveal something, to uncover something, to make something known that would not have otherwise been known so that you might have understanding. So for the understanding of something, revelation is required to reveal it. We believe that the scriptures are the self-revelation of God. What can be known about God is revealed to us by God. And there's two kind of big categories. There's what's called general revelation, and then there's what's called specific or special revelation. General revelation is like the rain coming down right now. It's just like all over the earth that the world would be watered, that the world would know something about God. This is what Psalm 19 opens up with. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare, let's make known the glories of God. The sky above proclaims, it's revealing his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So the first thing is general revelation. When you look at the world, whether you're most in love with the creation in the mountains or being coastal, whether it's in the deserts, you just look at creation, you look at the heavens, you look how it's all ordered perfectly. There's the sun hanging in the sky. 
that warms your hand when you're in sunlight and you're cooled from it in shade. And you look around and go, it looks like someone planned this place. Like there's a God who creates, like everything I look at is pouring forth knowledge and speech that something bigger and greater than me formed it. That's general revelation. So that all people would be, be aware that there's a God. And it's speaking at night, speaking during the day. It's just revealing something about his grandeur and his power and his intention and purposes, his care, his beauty, all of that is in creation. And then there's what's called specific revelation or special. And specific revelation is what can be known about God, his plans, his promises, his purposes that would otherwise not have been known unless he revealed it in a specific manner. And the manner by which God has chosen to reveal his plans, purposes, his knowledge of what is coming is through his written word. Now, if you're God, you can do whatever you want. I think that's what it means to be God. And God has chosen to have us write down the very specific things that he's done through human history and his activity with human beings. And so we're gonna re he reveals himself in a very specific way through the written word. Now here's where the relational piece comes in. This is so very important. He does that through human authors. That God has a, has a, committed, has a commitment to revealing himself, his plans and purposes through human beings. He has, a, he has a commitment to accomplish everything he wants to accomplish through or in partnership with men and women. And he's fully committed to this. And so part of his revelation is through human authors who have lived in real geographical space and time on earth with unique personalities, backgrounds, socioeconomic classes, different educations, people who lived at different places and parts to reveal something about God. And the first place in the Bible where human beings are commanded to write something down is in the Exodus story that God calls Moses to write down the things that have happened so that future generations can remember the salvation, the work of saving that God has done for his people. This is Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, verse 14 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. It's like, write these words down and then tell Joshua what God has done so that my specific working with you can be known what kind of God I am, how I loved you, cared for you, saved you, and they can remember it. Exodus 34 says, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So I'm making an agreement, a vow, like a marriage, and I want them to know the, the words of the vows, the covenant that I'm making with you, that future generations will be able to look back at what has been written by you so that they can have understanding. They can know who I am, my promises, my care, my intention, my purposes. And so it's God's choosing to reveal himself in a very specific way, in a written form, but through human authors. And why is that so important? I told you it's important. It's important because this, the Bible is not a divine dictated book 
or a book from heaven. It's like it just, all of it just arrived from heaven. Or people just were dictating it. Or God did dictate it to one author, one person, found tablets. Or one person had a revelation. What you find out is that the Bible is God's word through human authors, through a period of time, to make himself known. What we would call this is inspired. That was in the statement of faith. This is what we would call it, God's activity with human beings. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoken from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's, a, that's a kind of a bizarre statement, but it's trying to get at what's going on. It's like a sailboat. It's like there's a boat, there's a human, and then there's an animating activity like wind that carries this unique boat that's also captained at the same time to its end and purposes. That's God working with humanity to bring about his revelation. And so the book is not a divine book from heaven. Everyone should probably be suspect of divine books from heaven, okay? Anyone's like, I saw a revelation. This is the one revelation. You can never see it, investigate it, ask questions about it. Here it is. Be suspect. That's not what the Bible is. I've showed you this silly picture before. I think it's helpful, so I keep showing it to you. The Bible is really like a library. So this is like the Bible bookcase. And on this bookcase, the upper part is the Old Testament and the bottom is the New Testament. But let's be honest, the whole thing's old now. And so it's really just the first testament and then the second testament. And the first testament is all of it, all of it, all of it's about Christ. And so it's Jesus Christ concealed. What God's going to do to bring about his promised Messiah. That's the first testimony. What God will do to bring about salvation. The second testament, second testimony, is Christ revealed. How God brought about and fulfilled the promises he had in the first testament. Those are the two testaments. Christ concealed, Christ revealed. And in those two testaments, there are many books. And those books have genres to them. There are books of the law. There are books of history. There are books of poetry and music. There are books of prophecy. Now, this is where it gets really hard and people get, get kind of messed up. What would you expect to find in a book in hist of history? History. Yeah. You're a genius. That's it. <laughs> and so you have to approach the different books on its genres. Like what kind of genre is this book? Would you read poetry the same way you'd read narrative? No. And so this is where you've seen the memes. It's like, this is, look at this stuff in the Bible. Or the Bible you know, promotes this. Like, let's take an easy one, like polygamy. Did you not know there, there's polygamy in the Bible? The Bible promotes polygamy. Does it? No. In the histories of the Bible, to record the good, bad, and ugly so that you can know that what you're reading is actually true. It's not just the good stuff. The good, the bad, and the ugly, it talks about how many of these patriarchs had multiple wives. And you know what? They all had train wrecks of families. Nowhere does it condone it like this is a really good thing. In fact, when it comes to Israel's leadership, there's a strict prohibition that they cannot collect for themselves, like other kings do, many wives even trying to create treaty, treaties with other countries. And in fact, it's at their downfall. And so when you read it, you actually understand that it's recorded so you can know it actually happened. It's trustworthy and true. But by no means is it condoned. By no means is it celebrated. By no means are you, is it saying that you should do these things. Because you don't read history the same way you do poetry, the same way you do prophecy. And so there are different genres with different authors. There's more than 40 authors in different times and space. And here's the amazing thing. 66 books, more than 40 authors, over 1,500 years, in different geographical locations, all saying the same thing about God. 
as though there's really one God who is making himself known to humanity through humanity. It's remarkable. And so then there's this objection like, well, then the books that are in the Bible, well, those were chosen by a church, like a backroom board meeting. Right, this is the Da Vinci Code, right? Like there was, a, there was a church council. There was a big dog named Constantine. He was ruler of the Roman Empire. And there were all these books that were like saying things that the Christians didn't want to hear about. So they just put them away. And you look into that for about five seconds on the internet and you realize that's, that's totally not true. Like that story doesn't actually exist. It's made up. It's fictional. And so you're like, what is the historical, what's called canonization of the scriptures? How did we get these books? Well, let's think about just the New Testament for a, for a moment. In the New Testament, the canonization is what's called its ability to recognize these books as authoritative. And there are certain criteria that are required of these books. Like one, every author has to be an eyewitness of Jesus. That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, so like no one gets to write 200 years later about Jesus and gets to be in the Bible. So like only eyewitnesses or those who are talking to eyewitnesses get to write books in the Bible. And then did the church itself recognize these letters to be authoritative or these gospels to be authoritative. And what you find out is when you put some of these, put this lens on these uh, requirements for the New Testament books of authorship, of how the early church viewed them in proximity, dating. These are the only books that match to those things that are credible enough to be in the Bible. And so it's not as though the church chose these books. It's that the church recognized these books. It's like, wow, you're using these letters from Paul. You're using this gospel of Matthew. That You're using these books as authoritative scripture. And so we just simply recognize. It's like the scripture and the church grew up together and we recognize these scriptures as authoritative. I love what J.R. Packard says. He's like thinking of the church or thinking that the church invented the canon, which books are in it, is like thinking Sir Isaac Newton invented gravity. It's like, no, they're, they're making the observation of what is true and then they recognize it and then they canonize it. So canonizing is these books belong here. Now, all of these books were written on scrolls. So if you went to a local synagogue, they'd have like the big, huge scroll of Isaiah, scroll of Jeremiah. It was really costly to have these scrolls. And so you'd be, you'd be a lucky person to have a few of these in your synagogues or in your local town. New technologies, though, allow for these Scrolls, letters, histories, poetries to be printed and bound together. And so the, the formal term for that is a codex. When you take multiple books and you put them together and you bind them as though it's one book, that's called a codex. And so what you hear have is the Bible is not just one book, divine from heaven. No, but you have 40 plus authors, 66 books in time and space, all saying the same thing, put in one binding so that you might have the confidence to know that this is the book that was written. Which moves to this question, like, okay, what is the clearest expression of the word of God? Well, it's, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his title is the word of God. John opens up, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, like that's Jesus, who's God, with God, in the beginning, that's how creation happens. And the word becomes flesh and dwelt amongst us. And that shouldn't surprise you because how does God want to reveal himself is through human beings. And so God becomes man and the, the pinnacle of his special revelation is the God man living out 
This is the word of God on display. You want to know what the word of God looks like, you just look at Jesus. What does the word of God look like? How does it treat people? Just look at Jesus. Is the word of God gracious? Just look at Jesus. There's the word of God, man, God on display. And you're like, whoa, I think I love the word of God. I'm finding the word of God loves me. And so you can look at the reliability of those, of those New Testament scriptures when they give an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The penultimate, the pinnacle revelation of who God is. The question is, are those scriptures trustworthy? So we know the revelation through relationship. Are they reliable? Like, is the book that I'm reading the book that was actually written? That'd be the question. Well, well how would you know? Or at least how would you have a reasonable, reliable guess? Would you, how many copies of it would you like? Just one? Two? Three? If there were 10 copies, 10 early manuscripts within you know, a few years of Jesus Christ, would that be enough? Well, look at what this quote says. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature with over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts cataloged, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, Coptic, Nubian, and Armenian. That seems pretty trustworthy. But how does that compare to other ancient works? I mean, like, do you believe in Rome? Do you believe that Rome had some laws, that Caesar did some stuff, that there were some wars? How would you know, except to read Roman historians and their works. How does the Bible compare to other ancient works of its time? Well, here's a chart. Glad you asked. Thanks for coming to church. Take a look. Here's Tacitus's annals. Talking about Roman history. No one doubts these things. Okay, we, we believe that the Roman historians were accurate. Tacitus, who wrote in 110 AD, it's about 70 years after Jesus, the earliest manuscript of his historical work is found in 850 AD or 1050 AD, somewhere in there. About a thousand years later is the first copy of his work, which means 700, 750 years, sorry, I'm not good at math, 750 years later is the first copy of his work and no one doubts its authenticity. And there are 36 total copies of that. And you can start seeing all of the different works at this time of antiquity when they were written, the gap of the first copy that we have, and then look at the Bible. The first copy is 125 AD. The Bible was written between like 40, 60 AD to 80, 90 AD, which means that you have the earliest copies like 25 to 30 years after they were written, which means you go ask your dad if this is what he read. That's amazing. And there's not like two copies or five copies. There's 5,800 copies and growing. Every year, they find more copies of this stuff. Like in the, over in Israel, they just like put a shovel in the ground. They're like, oh my gosh, more Bible. It's crazy. <laughs> and so they just keep uncovering all of this so that you can know within reason that the book you're reading is the book that's written. And that, that quote I gave you, I mean, that's not like something I, I found in the back of the library in an old abandoned book that might be true. That's a quote from Wikipedia, okay? And that's not to mean that Wikipedia is the source of all authority. That just means how widespread and knowledgeable this is. Like, no one's trying to hide this stuff from you. Everybody knows. 
Liberal and conservative scholars agree that the Bible's trustworthy. And what you're reading is what was written. There's a great book called I Still Believe. It's not the movie. I don't know anything about that. But there's a book where they have all of these modern scholars who do textual criticism, looking at all of the original languages that are archaeological, sorry, archaeologists, archaeologists, archaeological, archaeologists, thank you, archaeologists who are looking at the modern evidence. And they ask them, like, do you still believe? Like after 60 years of scholarly work, do you still believe this book to be true? And, and here are some of the things that they say. These are people like Walter Brueman, Richard Bauckham, Ellen Davis, Edith Humphrey. They say the Bible is the most historically reliable and enduring book ever written. Despite the passage of time, the Bible's message remains consistent and its historical accuracy has been confirmed through archaeological discoveries. The Bible has withstood centuries of scrutiny and criticism, yet its textual integrity and preservation are unparalleled. That's the Bible. With all of these manuscripts that's passed down from one generation to the next. And if you have any questions, that's good. If you belong to a faith community that wants to suppress your questions, find a new faith community. There's not a question that you have that has not been asked a thousand times, that hasn't been given a thoughtful response 10,000 times. If you have a very specific question, I, I, this is like what I do for a living. And so if you, wanna, if you wanna send me your question, I'd love to send you a couple of resources, scholarly articles, arguments to help you understand more about the question that you have. And one of the questions that often comes up when we talk about the transmission of the Bible over time through all of those manuscripts, like, yeah, that number's impressive, but that's where the breakdown is because passing knowledge from one generation to the next, people would say, is like the game telephone. You ever play the game telephone? Some of you guys have never played the game telephone. I'm sad for you. You should find 12 friends and play. And the premise of it is you, you tell somebody one message and then they tell the next person, they tell the next person, they tell the next person. And by the end, it comes back something different than you intended to say. And isn't the Bible just like that, they would say? Well, the game of telephone is, is fun be, because the purpose of it is actually to give an obscure message that's hard to remember and it's fun to see how it changes over time. And so you begin the game of telephone by saying something like, Monkeys on a banana boat headed to the Bahamas to sunbathe. You're like, okay, I think I got it, you know? And then you're like, you say it to the next person, and by the end, it's something totally different. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible, first and foremost, is telling you something informative, trying to bring clarity. So from the get-go, it's like the message is this. You have cancer. You gonna forget that? Some of you guys can't forget when your doctor said that. So first and foremost, it's for your life and it's to bring clarity so that you would do something. And then second, it's nothing like the game telephone because this is how the Bible actually is passed from generation to generation. Imagine this, first and foremost, it doesn't begin with one person, it begins with a community of people that say, this is the message, right? This is what we saw? This is what we heard? Yes. And then we tell the next person, this is what we saw, this is what we heard. Repeat that back to me. 
And then this person repeats back, this is what you said that you heard and that you saw. Is that accurate? And then this community says, is what they said accurate? Yes, that's what they said. Then they join the community and this community grows and says to the next person, this is what we saw, this is what we heard, this is what he said. Repeat back to us what you just heard us say. So then this person repeats back to this community, this is what I heard you say that he said and did. And do you see how this thing works? It's like peer reviewed constantly. And when you look at many of these transmissions of the scriptures over the years, this is the best part. There are professional scribes doing this work. And so every time the next generation receives a message like, wait a minute, that word sounded a little bit different. We thought you said you have cancer. What's cancer? It's, oh, it's cancer. It has an R. It's missing the R. Okay, there's a textual note from the scribes. It's missing an R. Just so everybody knows it's missing an R. And so all of these manuscripts have this textual notes from the scribes when words are spelled different, when sentences are structured differently. And so are there variants in the manuscripts? Sure. Should that bother you? Not one bit. Because it's documented so that the next person would know, that you could know, that you could see the transmission. Shouldn't bother you one bit. And in all of those variations of spelling, of sentence structure, do any of them have anything to do with the theology of who God is, his salvation, his purpose, his plan, his son, or who you are as a human being? Nope, not one. But remember, it's revelation in relationship, and it's reliable. I mean, it's extremely reliable to know that the book that you're reading is the book that was written. The last question then is, is it relevant? Like, cool, so there's an old reliable book. Is it, is it helpful? Is there any reason to be in it? Well, first and foremost, let me start with a basic premise. You live in the Western world. And just from an inquiry of how the world around you works, why it works this way, why we have institutions that we have, you should know your Bible. For you live in a culture that was formed and shaped from a Judeo-Christian point of view from people of the book. Okay, I'm not saying this is like a Christian country. I'm just saying people of the book formed the world that you're living in. And so universities exist because Christians of the book that would be really, really important to educate the populace specifically on how to read so that they can what? Read their Bibles. Like Harvard University, just like one, just pick your poison, Harvard, Yale, whatever. They're, they're founded as seminaries or universities to educate people about the scriptures. Like the vision, the mission statement of Harvard founded in 1600s is so that in all things in life and in studies, people would know God, Jesus Christ, who is their salvation, their eternal life. That's the mission of Harvard. Why are universities established? Why do you get to go to school? Why is education important? Because people of the book valued that. You live in a Western world that comes from, from the book. Maybe you wanna know why they were inspired to do that our modern medicine, hospitals, to care for the poor, to care for the grieving, to care for the sick, to care for human beings. That's an institution and a Judeo-Christian premise from the book. Even the government we live in, which is not perfect, okay? But the fact that the government believes, like a government believes that human beings are endowed by their creator. Like there's a creator who made you it's in the government language. They believe there's a God who made you. 
and you have what's called inalienable rights. It means the government didn't give you these rights. There's a God who gave you some rights. You have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the role of government is not to give you those rights, but to secure those rights for you. Welcome to America. That comes out of this book. And so if you really want to know, like, how's the world around you work? Man, the Bible's super relevant, super relevant. But I also just want the Bible to speak for itself. What does the Bible claim to be in the relevance of your life? Two passages. First one is found in Timothy. Or actually, the first one we'll go to is, is Hebrews. Hebrews describes the word of God this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divine of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Like this isn't a dead book, it's a living book and it's active in our lives. Kind of helping us understand the deepest parts of what it means to be human. Like what's going on mentally in me, in my desires, in my anguishes. The word of God is living and active and gets to the deepest parts of what it means to be human. That's what the scriptures are. The scriptures are a collection of works that are the truest expressions of what it means to be a human being. With all of your desires and all your destructive behaviors in hopes and dreams, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's in the Bible. When you read the stories of the Bible, you find yourself in them. And the second thing is, it's the only book that tells you the plan of salvation. What is God's activity in our life? And how is it that I move from death to life? Revealed in the scriptures. One more passage comes from first, or sorry, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable. Like this book is profitable. It's to your benefit for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That, that you'd be built up in it. That the man or the woman of God might be complete. If you don't feel whole, the, the Bible, the word of God teaches you how to be complete, be whole, be built up. And then it says equip. They want to equip you for every good work so that from the scriptures, you'd be ready to serve those around you. It's not just so you know things, they'd be equipped to do things, be equipped for your good works. And so what I really want to leave you with is, is really just my desire that you would know the Bible is revelation. It's not just some holy book from heaven. Through human authors in relationship, that it's reliable and it's, it's relevant to your life and that you would have a deep desire to know it and love it. And I'm just gonna go back to Psalm 19 where we began. And this is the heart of the psalmist that I just, I just want to be your heart as well when we come to the Bible. Psalm 19, verse seven, the law of the Lord, this right here, is perfect. It's reviving the soul, he says. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, helping you see. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. What is this book? 
Oh man, it makes, it makes the simple wise. It gives you understanding and enlightenment. And it tastes good. And it's valuable. It's to be pursued more than wealth itself. This would be the most valuable thing to have in your life. What is this? It's the trustworthy, true word of God about who is God, who we are, what this world is about, and where this thing is going. And so I just want to end just by praying for you. If we can be praying for you about something specific, something small or big, our prayer team will be up here at the end of service. But I just want to take a moment just to pray for you before we leave, that you would have eyes to see and ears to hear that this is not simply a myth, a fairy tale, a legend. It is the historical, accurate record of God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us time today to, to open up your scriptures and, and to look at what this book is. Father, I pray that this frame would just help people understand their orientation to the word. I pray this gives them some handholds as they begin to explore the questions that they have. I pray that the spirit would excite them to want to know more. And so, Father, I pray that they would, they would receive an invitation to join you in your word, to know more about you, more about themselves, more about the world around them. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Love you. Have a great week. We'll see you very soon.